You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to the new episode of the Tech Tank Podcast. My name is Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, and I'm one of your co-hosts today. In March of this year, President Biden released one of the most aggressive infrastructure plans since former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The American Rescue Plan has been President Biden's response to the pandemic, as more and more families are in need of immediate relief to get the vaccine, return to work, and stabilize their households, even by putting their kids back into schools. The most important part of the American Rescue Plan is the American Jobs Plan, which is driving the workforce aspect of his grandiose bill, which is critical for two reasons. First, America, compared to other countries, ranks 13th in overall quality of our roads, bridges, water systems, and other critical assets. Second, the installation of new infrastructure, particularly broadband infrastructure, is guaranteed to develop jobs, good-paying, potentially unionized jobs that offer both high wages and worker securities. Biden has argued that this infrastructure and jobs package could generate as many as 19 million jobs. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, now I know I messed his name up because I'm from New York, but I'm trying, declares around 2.7 million jobs per year over a 10-year period. So today we're going to talk about these jobs that the President and the Secretary of Transportation are promising, and in particular... This episode dovetails the two prior ones, Focus on My Tech New Deal, which has been exploring the role of broadband infrastructure in President Biden's goals. You can find the details of my plan on my Brookings expert page to avoid me going further into it. But in previous episodes, we've already talked about why we need it with Congressman Jim Clyburn and former FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn how we can motivate people to help their communities get on board through the maybe a National Digital Service Corps. And today, we're gonna talk about jobs, 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 and what can be done to ensure that the plan not only creates the proposed number of opportunities, but the workforce is inclusive, especially in the broadband and tech sectors where there has been no shortage of demand. So today's guests include Algernon Austin, senior researcher at the Third Good Marshall Institute and former researcher at a series of notable think tanks, which include Demos, Center for Global Policy Solutions, and the Economic Policy Institute. Allison Scott, chief executive officer of the Kapoor Center Foundation and formerly the chief research officer of the Kapoor Center. Rekin Thacker, chief technology officer, Wireless Infrastructure Association, and former vice president of telecommunications and spectrum policy, at the Multicultural Media, Telecom, and Internet Council. He's also a faculty member at the University of Maryland, College Park, in the telecom program. And one thing to say, this episode is not short of any doctors today. Welcome, Dr. Doctor and Doctor. It's a pleasure to be with you, Doctor. <laughs> I know, this is a big, doc- this is a big DR soup <laughs> podcast in a long time. So I want to jump right into this, Algernon, and I want to start with you because you're the economist that's sitting here as one of the guests. You know, we've been tracking the trajectory of jobs under a variety of presidential administrations, and I know your work has included that in particular. Biden has made some public statements about 19 million jobs being created through the new infrastructure plan, and I believe that's across the board. And Buttigieg actually just said 2.7 jobs over 10 years. And again, I'm assuming that those jobs that he's referring to will be in, you know, the infrastructure assets of our critical water systems, transportation, et cetera, broadband included. With that being the case, I want you to talk to me a little bit first about what makes this period interesting with this potential infrastructure deal and why it's so interesting on the heels of what is becoming COVID-19's dramatic um, economic consequences. Well, the important thing to recognize is that the American Society of Civil Engineers rates our America's infrastructure, gives it a C minus grade, C minus That means that a lot of our infrastructure is deteriorating and some of it is on the verge of collapse. So we desperately need a big investment in infrastructure. We've deferred this for way too long. So I'm excited that we have an administration that recognizes this and is is clearly pushing hard to get 
to get this. So we need the infrastructure. We need all kinds of infrastructure. I like that the administration recognizes that it's more than just roads and bridges. It includes broadband. It includes water. It includes schools. It includes housing. So all of that is great. They're also adding on, like, in addition to that hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure in terms of the care economy. So this is great. And in terms of Right now, we're in this deep recession, and when you have large investments, you create large number of jobs. So, so this, is, this is a win-win for the country. We need the investments. We need the jobs. So this is great. Let's hope we can go, we can go as big as we need. You know, that's something that is so surprising, right, in terms of the infrastructure quality that we have here in the United States. And what's also what I'm finding interesting is that Biden really comes out and says, these are not white collar jobs, folks, right? These are blue collar jobs. That's why I want to shift to this next question. I want to stay on you for a minute, Aljanah, with regards to underskilled, unemployed, potentially de-skilled and, and perhaps marginalized workers. How do you see this plan more generally with regards to their participation in this new economy? Then I want to talk a little bit more specifically about broadband. Yeah, well, it, it absolutely will for the hard infrastructure jobs. Generally, those jobs do not require a four-year degree. So you can infrastructure generates jobs across the entire spectrum, but most of the 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 hard infrastructure jobs do not require a bachelor's degree. And they're even the projections also include even people who are high school dropouts to some extent will be able to get jobs. So that's really positive. And the soft infrastructure part also is not targeting people with four years degrees. So in terms of including the groups, the segment of the, the economy that has been left behind, those without college degrees, this is this plan is also a win on that front. It really does a significant amount of the job creation will be for those workers without a college degree on on down. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so promising, right? Because part of what we've experienced in the pandemic, and my colleague Andre Perry constantly talks about, you know, what happened to Black businesses, right? Or Black-owned businesses and women-owned businesses. We saw a lot of closures. A Yelp study, I think, said that, you know, one out of four of those businesses were going to permanently close, if I'm correct. When you think about that, and I want to stick on you because, you know, I'm a sociologist. I'm not an economist, so I'm real curious about this. If we have these jobs and, you know, people somehow of color or people who are de-skilled or recently unemployed or, you know, just don't have the skills to compete in other industries, you know, we look at this infrastructure bill. I mean, are you betting your money that this is going to work out for those folks? Because I tell you something, society is just not the same as a result of this pandemic. And I think we're going to see a hard hit workforce or we're going to see a workforce that is not going to recognize the jobs that are being created because they've not been exposed to it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic because one thing with job creation and even infrastructure job creation is that it's always, in, in fact, with infrastructure spending, most of the jobs are actually not infrastructure jobs that are created because you create you create infrastructure jobs, you know, let's let's say construction jobs, but then you also create jobs of everyone supporting the construction workers. So the truck drivers, the, you know, I mentioned civil engineers, the engineers, the accountants, the administrative assistants in the in the construction firm. And then you also have respending jobs. You know, when people are working, when people are unemployed, they cut back on their spending and they don't support businesses. So I think you see a lot of black businesses close because there's such a high level of unemployment in the black community and all of those black workers are cutting back on their spending and not supporting the businesses. So what happens to the businesses? They either lay people off or they go out of business completely. So when you have investments like infrastructure investments and it ripples out throughout the, com the economy and it increases Black employment, then more Black people spend more and can support those Black businesses. So because most of the jobs, about two-thirds of the, the infrastructure jobs are these support jobs and these respending jobs, you all you actually get a broad 
a broad sector of the society as a whole benefiting. The other thing that's in the bill, the original plan, the original American Jobs Plan, and unfortunately it's being whittled away as as we speak, but the the plan does include money for job training. It does include money for apprenticeships, as well as other investments that can bring people in. So maybe you want to be, maybe you want one of those construction jobs, and they are relatively well-paying jobs for someone who doesn't have a college degree. Maybe you want that. I think the apprenticeship opportunities and the other job training opportunities can be a road, a path into those jobs. So. If the plan is implemented as envisioned and with some equity in mind, it can really help move people into into a broad range of good jobs. Yeah, I mean, we hope so, right? Because I think, as you said, with Black unemployment, you want to make sure that we're actually having something that's going to contribute to the capacity building for communities most hardest hit by the pandemic. But Allison, this this makes me turn to you, right? Because I find it very interesting with broadband being one of the components of critical infrastructure, that when we talk about skill qualification, as you heard Algernon talk about, we're no longer talking about that big flag we've been running for a long time, which is just about STEM, right? But we do know that the industries that are making a lot of money right now have people who are also engineers and have a problem when it comes to diversity. Talk to me a little bit first in terms of your reaction to the pandemic and what you think that's also done to sort of the skill qualification that we're talking about today and what that may potentially do. You know, are there going to be more jobs because we see, you know, big tech sort of driving the commerce aspects of our economy? Or should we be thinking about, you know, trying to keep computer science investments? I just want to hear a little bit more of your opinion, since this is something you work on often. Absolutely, Nicole. And at the k Center, we, we think a lot about diversity in tech um, and the tech workforce and ecosystem broadly. And we know that prior to COVID, research by, you know, McKinsey, Brookings, Joint Center, we knew that, in particular, Americans from communities of color, Black Americans, were overrepresented in at-risk roles, more likely to be subject to automation, um, more likely to be uh, concentrated in geographies that were, or less concentrated in geographies that were high growth in technology. And then across the tech ecosystem more broadly, we know tech is driving our economy. The tech sector is predominantly white and male, very little representation of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous folks. And we have these perpetual conversations about the demand out, outpacing the supply of the traditional four-year talent, jobs continuing to evolve in um, emerging technology spaces at uh, really rapid rates that our educational systems are struggling to keep pace with, and then technology's role in driving inequality, as you mentioned, during COVID, um, where you know you see this huge rise of, of families um, unemployed and struggling to pay bills while tech billionaires are getting richer and companies are adding trillions of dollars in value. So I think all of that being said, uh, we have a unique kind of moment of opportunity where we're rebuilding this economy, but the American Jobs Plan has a uh, critical opportunity for long needed investment in upskilling and workforce infrastructure. And we see this as as, um, one opportunity to increase um, equity and um, opportunity across the entire technology sector as just one really interesting opportunity within the American Jobs Plan. So we heard Algernon talk about things like reskilling, upskilling, apprenticeships, and we think that those are are really important on-ramps into what might be, you know, out of some of these lower wage, lower skill, high risk for automation jobs, and potentially into on-ramps into tech jobs that uh, potentially are are more lucrative. You know, I love the way you talk about that because I mean, not to be shameless again, but this tech new deal that I came up with, it really in the workforce section is talking about like, how do we create this very diversified portfolio when it comes to workforce? Because, you know, we've seen that with the absence of some in-person stores that we've had to rely upon online providers. And it is pretty important, right, that we ensure that people are getting some of those jobs or even creators, Allison. I mean, I want to stay with you for just a moment. Even creators, diverse founders, right, should be able to sort of break into this marketplace as we see more online activities. Absolutely. So I think 
there are a few different things to advocate for. I think one, we would argue that we have to ensure that people of color are at the center of the innovation economy and included in these future-proof jobs. So this can be in, in um, R&D, manufacturing, STEM, clean energy, all of these areas that are called for in the jobs plan. We also need to think about all of the different upskilling pathways, so modernizing public and community colleges and thinking about how those, you know, how the curriculum might align with the industry needs addressing the skills gaps of, of employers and making sure that employers are evaluating the upskilled candidates in the same way. But then, as you said, there is still a pretty significant, I think, investment that's needed and much more need to be done on the uh, private sector side in deployment of capital and stimulating the economy, economy and innovation um, through venture capital and investment in, in startup companies and entrepreneurs of color as well. Yeah, no, I think that's something that you and I have been talking about as part of the Federal Communication Commission's Advisory Committee on Diversity and, and the subgroup that we both are on, that we need to start putting these issues in the forefront. You know, Rekin, you know, you're also coming from an industry that has been quite successful and resilient over the last 18 months, and that's the wireless industry. Mm-hmm. And I know you and I met so many years ago when we were trying to think of ways to get more communities, you know, and not just people of color, but just people who are on the side that Algernon mentioned and Allison mentioned who are unskilled, de-skilled, you know, need skills kind of folks. And you have been thinking about ways to actually engage people in the wireless industry. First and foremost, you got to tell us why we should be looking at the wireless industry much more seriously, what the deficits are, which is why we should be having this conversation Mm -hmm. as this infrastructure plan is proposed, and where you think there are opportunities to sort of get people back to work there too. Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, thanks for having me, Nicole. This is an extremely important topic for us at WIA, and, and we are devoted to solving this current workforce need of 5G. So as you know, at WIA, we are very active on many different things, right? And we are constantly working at different fronts, including cellular infrastructure, small cells, spectrum, and workforce, of course. And we want to make sure that the barriers for 5G and, and broadband deployment, they are addressed with the help of federal agencies and Congress and, and, and private sector as well. So for this discussion, actually, I'd like to actually highlight some of our groundbreaking work in addressing the workforce challenges for the broadband and wireless industries in general. But to, to answer a question, I mean, we need to understand where 5G is heading. And before we do that, we also want to understand what 4G has brought to us, right? We know that U.S. won the race to 4G, right? Our 4G leadership created millions of jobs. We have seen innovative innovations through app economy. I mean, those are like some of the examples. But we know that 5G networks are going to take all of this at a much higher level. It is expected to transform how people and machines communicate, how even our communities are connected to each other and industries do business. So what's unique about 5G is that it is being deployed at low band, mid band and high band frequencies. And I promise you, I'm not going to get any more technical than this, but what, what I'm trying to suggest here is that 5G is actually going to provide ubiquitous coverage and capacity that's also going to address the digital divide issue. All this is great, right? But one of the key enablers for all of this is the availability of skilled workforce, right? And let's face it, we, we don't have that. The telecommunication industry has a demand for more skilled technicians than currently exist. 5G is expected to create now there are a number of reports out there actually and very recently published and and the number is is is, is aligning it is expected to create 4.6 right 4.6 million jobs in next 10 years. Now, this is possible only when the 5G network is deployed on time, right? So without the skilled workforce, we will be delaying the deployment uh, of, of the network and also associated innovation. What's unique, and, and I want to actually admire here and bring FCC a little bit, FCC realized that this could be a major barrier if we don't address it. As part of the BDAC, Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, as you know, FCC created actually a job skills and training opportunity working, a working group. And, and working group actually highlighted the skills gap issue faced by the broadband industry. And and it was an honor for me, actually, to serve on that working group as the co-chair. That actually allowed me to closely look at many reasons behind the current shortage shortage of of the broadband workforce. Some of them, actually, I can mention right now, lack of standardized nationwide training program, 
lack of funding to support apprenticeships and other training initiatives. And I'm glad to say that that is changing thanks to DOL, Department of Labor, also lack of standardized job codes. And of course, let's face it, dwindling workforce because of retirement. So I highly recommend actually to the listener to to read that report. It was a joint effort by a group of amazing individuals. We invited a lot of SMEs as well. And it was actually uh, of um, fine product after 15 months of efforts by all of us. At WIE, actually, even prior to FCC's BDAC, we created actually a skills gap and training working group under the Innovation and Tech Council, or ITC as we call it. And we produced two white papers addressing the skills gap for our industry, right? How and how to actually best address the growing demand of workforce for 5G. And, and both of these papers were very well received by the industry and academia and, and government agencies as well. And, and we also saw a couple of papers and studies recently published, and one of them actually came from Brookings, actually. Very nicely done. It elaborated the broadband workforce needs and, and, and how we can actually address that very efficiently. And you mentioned Nicole, Congressman Clyburn, actually. His proposed bill has been mentioned in, in Brookings study as well, $80 billion. And some part of this needs to be actually dedicated to the expansion of registered apprenticeship and training for 5G. We will definitely see massive benefits as a result of that. And the another one I want to just highlight quickly before I, I later on address a uh, solutions piece is the report that came out from National Spectrum Consortium that also actually suggested 4.6 million jobs that would be created because of 5G, uh, direct and indirect both. So no doubt that we'll see a lot of jobs that would be created because of 5G deployment. But if we don't have skilled people now, uh, we will not be able to actually deploy the network on time. Yeah, I mean, this is to me, you know, I'm sitting here writing all these copious notes because there's a couple things going through my mind. And thank you for sharing that, Regan, right? Because we're definitely seeing that the demand for broadband is changing. I mean, look, Pew published a study today, June 3rd, saying that we've seen incremental increases in percentage points of broadband uses among rural residents, Black residents, Latina residents, as well as those who are low income. And we're talking about double digit um, increase in terms of their usage. But what you're talking about, which is why I wanted to do this podcast, is we often don't transition this into a conversation around moving people from consumption to production, right, of these hard assets. And Algernon, you know, I think when you listen to this, and particularly when you see what promise is going to be coming through broadband, these are real opportunities, right, <laughs> for people to get to work. And they do not necessarily require the engineering school skills, but they could, Right. But how do we make this, how do we match these conversations? Because I sort of feel like there's a conversation around closing the digital divide, and then there's a conversation about infrastructure, and then there's a conversation about jobs. And then to Allison's point, there's this conversation about education and workforce training. How do we make them all make sense, given your experience in this area? Well, <laughs> there, are many, there are many answers. But one thing is, and this is actually mentioned briefly in the Biden's American Jobs Plan, is sectoral training programs. So those are programs where people identify, like was just done, identify, okay, this is a growth industry. We need workers and let's design training programs specifically to meet the needs of this of, you know, to provide the supply for, for this demand. So that's, that's what we need. We need to recognize that. Unfortunately, we've done, you know, we've done a poor job. You know, we've seen similar things with nursing, and yet we really haven't adequately produced the amount of nurses that we, we've, we need. So that's discouraging as we think about broadband because we've kind of failed in the past. We, we hope that we learn from our mistakes and say, hey, there's this growth sector. Let's, let's invest in the training that's necessary to, to fill this need. So it's certainly something that we can do, that we need people with vision and we need the, the policymakers to to recognize that that it's needed and to be willing to make the investments. But this this gets at a broader problem of our, you know, not only are we not investing adequately in infrastructure, we're not investing adequately in, in our educational system broadly. You know, I keep thinking this discussion keeps taking me to Raj Chetty did a paper, he's an economist at Harvard University, and he runs this think tank called Opportunity Insights. 
and he did a paper called The Lost Einsteins. And he just he points out that we lose, there are a lot of talent, there are a lot of very bright children of color, but our educational system does not identify them and nurture them. So we lose these Einsteins, we lose these inventors who could contribute tremendously to our economy because we don't invest in their education. So we, we really need a stronger policy vision and policy action and a recognition that we have to invest in the American society. That includes the infrastructure, but it also includes the children, our schools, etc. Yeah, you know, I'm look, this is not on the script. I'm going to ask it anyway. And Allison, I'm coming for you. <laughs> when we hear what Algernon just talked about with education, I mean, think about these last 18 months. I'm just curious before we started talking about some strategies for making this marriage between these sectors, between these silos work better. What do you think is going to happen, you know, given this 18 months and what we've actually seen with regards to the disparities in access to broadband and how that's going to affect the experience of these new engineers and scientists and data scientists that we need in the queue? I could not agree more uh, with both of you that I think our investment in education is going to be critical in terms of how we advance as a nation and how we emerge, hopefully, as a more equitable society after this pandemic. So I think all of this data is super familiar to all of you. And just for the listeners, thinking about the the huge implications of the lack of broadband have had on students and families. But if we talk about students in particular, we saw about 15 million students that were disconnected to instruction when COVID hit. So that meant immediately there was a scramble across all levels, district, state, uh, federal, to provide, you know, kind of stopgap measures to, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots. We had students in, uh, there was a a picture that went viral in California. We had students sitting outside of a Taco Bell trying to access their lessons. There's been uh, data from McKinsey showing what learning loss might look like, the achievement gap growing wider. We did a, a quick survey of CS teachers since we're really interested in the CS education landscape and found that in some cases schools were, refer- were pulling back on offering CS and just, you know, returning to quote unquote the basics. We saw similar trends in native communities where we were working to, to again, access, expand access to CS, but without reliable broadband and devices, students were being left behind. So I could not um, agree more that all of these issues are intertwined. And and I think that in our work to advance equity in CS, we have to continue to raise the alarm, CS and STEM education. We have to raise the alarm that to move forward, we have to address these foundational disparities. So resources, broadband access, teacher preparation, we can't keep having deeply unequal schools and opportunities affecting students early in the pipeline and assume we will somehow then create a diverse and inclusive tech workforce. Oh, say it. I totally agree with that. If I'm, I'm over here snapping for you, Dr. Because <laughs> I'm like, look, I'm a parent who had a 14-year-old in virtual education for the last 18 months, and it was tough. I don't even know how we still have a relationship. But one thing I can say that I kept reminding her is that she was learning new skills that were going to be important to the new economy, learning how to work collaboratively with her peers, being independent, using multimedia. Some of us don't like it. We don't. But think about it. When I grew up, it was uh, typing <laughs> was the occupational skill. You had to take a typing class. Algernon, I go call you out, but don't act like you don't know. <laughs> I, I know. I still, I'm happy I took that typing class. It was good. I still use it today. <laughs> exactly. Now, Regan, I want to go back to you because I think that there's something to be said in both comments and where this conversation has gone so far around the time that it takes for this type of workforce development investment. Before I ask you later, you know, about apprenticeships and this type of advice that you would give this administration when structuring and resourcing those. What about credentialing? I mean, is this a good opportunity given the nature of these infrastructure jobs, particularly in broadband, to do more credentialing, which could be faster than actually, you know, formal education or even going through some of these certification programs? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think in my response, I'll also like to tie a little bit with what other speakers and experts mention about this. I think what First of all, the impact on last 18 months, what we lost is actually the ability to do hands-on projects, the lab exercises, the 
jobs that depend on this this hands-on tools and and instrumentation i think those kind of work or those kind of education from community colleges from high school and from other colleges as well i think that has been impacted hugely in my view so even though schools have been innovative and then done amazing work to bring everything virtual not only we are talking about availability of broadband but even if if you have broadband connectivity you you are doing all these activities virtually so that that on the job training which many of the employers would require that needs to be emphasized more and in terms of credentialing actually this is a great question we have great schools in the country right and and I want to tie this with education, but the education and curriculum hasn't kept up with the industry demand, right? Uh, you see more engagement of employers in many parts of the country with community colleges and not so much with four-year degree colleges. But even at community college level, the schools need help understanding what employers need, updating the current courses, introducing new courses. These are not easy tasks, right? And along with that, I think they need this constant connection with the regional employers who are hiring these graduates. They need to be actually more engaged with these colleges. I'd like to explain a little bit more just through our current partnership with the community colleges, through the Department of Labor grant we received last year. And and. As, as, as many of you know, and, and many of the listeners would know as well, that when it comes to registered apprenticeship, there are two key components to that. One is the on-the-job training that is usually provided by the employer, and the other one is classroom training that can be provided by the employer, or they can actually partner with the IHEs or community colleges locally. And, and we are proud to actually have this partnership with this five community colleges under this grant in, in the Midwest. And this grant actually provides necessary funding to design curriculum and deliver training to develop qualified applicants for placements in the middle and high skill job nationwide, basically. Colleges, in fact, prefer to work with industry intermediaries like WIA, where we are helping them understand what jobs are in demand, what jobs we are actually filing under the apprenticeship program, registered apprenticeship program, and that actually provides them a framework of what are these competencies that are required by the employers on the job? What are these classroom components they need to be designing and delivering so that when these apprentices come to come to their campuses and when they go through the classroom training, they know that this is exactly what the employers are looking for, right? And, and colleges actually appreciate WIS role as the national sponsor of registered apprenticeship program because they can then stay focused on curriculum development and we can actually guide them on how to actually and what to design by, by guiding their faculty members as well. Colleges definitely are not built to become the sponsor of the registered apprenticeship program, but they are actually glad that they have partners like us uh, who can actually tell them basically what employers want. We can also many times help them form this employer advisory committees that can actually translate their needs back to the classrooms as well. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I, I like what you're talking about, and I think you've given us a peek into the apprenticeship model, which I think is very successful when it comes to, you know, having the right set of partnerships as well as the right set of investments in it, mm -hmm. which leads me, you know, back to Algernon and to Allison around this question of the role of the private sector, because what Rika has really laid out is that he can identify through his association what the skills are for his industry, and as a result of that, find the partners to work with, which we've all named, government, school, community colleges, et cetera. But, but what about the private sector, Algernon? I mean, is it work, does it work better with infrastructure development when the private sector is actually willing to actually create those jobs? Or is this going to be a case where, you know, we see the, the bill pass and the private sector doesn't create the jobs that uh, Biden is expected and they maybe rehire or expand the wages of their existing uh, workforce? Well, I yeah, I think they will. I think the private sector will, you know, they they need to if if they if there's a demand, if if they're called on to build the infrastructure, they need to produce that and you need workers to to produce that. So I think the private sector will, you know, respond to the the amount of investment. But there there is a role for the administration, and I think the administration recognizes that to set the terms on which the the employment occurs. So I think that's really important. But thinking specifically about STEM, and I've been thinking about this over over the past year, given that we're seeing the tech economy, you know, boom tremendously and benefit from this environment. I really would like to see much more pressure on the 
the you know the tech giants to do more. I mean, they've made so much profits to really do more in terms of themselves investing in American society and in children and in the economy broadly. So I would love for, you know, every everyone who has a voice and influence to really put some more pressure on, you know, particularly the tech giants to do more, to contribute more to the society, because they certainly have the wealth to do that, you know. And so I think it's, it's important that they, they use that to the benefit of the society as a whole that they participated in and not, not solely their, their share, shareholders. Yeah, I mean, Allison, what about in your case? I mean, the whole um, success of STEM in many respects sort of loops back to the ability of people to see the payoff in a job. And outside of the challenges with diversity, we also know, particularly when we place, you know, low income, rural, geographically isolated kids, disproportionately kids of color into these positions, they can often feel alone, which leads to higher rates of attrition. And that is probably the subject of another podcast, right? (laughs) Because we have to have you back. But with that being the case, what's the role of the private sector if we are to think about these new booms in investment in terms of hiring or training and preparing their workforce? Yeah, I, I totally agree as well in terms of having the private sector at the table. I think expanding the diversity of its existing workforce should be, and allegedly, according to statements and diversity commitments, is a focus of, of the tech sector. And so thinking really strategically on, on the public sectors, or sorry, on the private sector's part around geography, where might we hire folks from? What are the skills, trainings, and training and, and backgrounds? that are not necessarily the traditional four-year CS or engineering degrees that are have been, you know, considered the highest pedigree of companies, and how to create more integrated public-private partnership workforce development opportunities that will get us to all of the outcomes that we're aspiring to in this rebuilding of our economy. Similar to, to what our previous guest just said, it shouldn't be the sole focus to maximize uh, profits at all expense, but like what what is the way that we're participating, that tech companies are participating in the structural change in our society? How are, how are they leveraging their power to create jobs in new locations or in underserved, marginalized communities or distressed communities? I think there's really interesting ways that the public and private sector can collaborate on, on that front. Yeah, I think what we're hearing in this conversation so far, right, is that we need this multi-stakeholder engagement and then potentially this Venn diagram, right, that matches the supply and the demand so we're not having this narrative if this bill passes where we don't have any workers, right? And it also sounds like we need to be very uh, strategic and the type of workforce opportunities and pre-workforce opportunities, you know, dating back to the pipeline. Regan, I want to just give you this opportunity and then I'm, I'm going to start going in for a close shortly, but I want to give you the opportunity to speak about, you know, if someone from the administration is listening around apprenticeships. Are there, is this something that should be housed at the Department of Labor? Is this something we should be having at different agencies? Because obviously infrastructure is going to hit transportation. You know, we don't technically have a broadband agency. If we look at the Clyburn bill, we see an, an agency within the Commerce Department that would deal with this. But where do you see this falling and fitting and being funded by? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and and very quickly, I just want to respond to the previous question on the private sector. And, and the simple answer is hire more diverse people. There, there is another important issue. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to keep at the center of all of this, right? Women, people of color, veterans, they continue to face underrepresentation in this industry. And, and, and we are glad to actually report that the vehicle provided by the Department of Labor Actually, it's going to allow us to address this through registered apprenticeship program. We have a goal and we are dedicated to achieve this goal, and that is to have at least 50, 50 percent of our apprentices coming from underrepresented population. And that includes women, people of color, veterans. So so I would I would definitely emphasize more on that. And and coming to your later question on the what what else we can do right what how actually government federal government and state government can help us well a number of things actually can be done at both level i'm glad to say that you know current administration and president biden is very vocal about this 
is committed to bringing ubiquitous broadband to the U.S. But more importantly, we know that 5G can actually solve many of these challenges related to connectivity and also help create more jobs, of course. So we definitely appreciate President Biden's proposal, which includes $48 billion investment focused just on registered apprenticeships. And, and this is, as we know, this is effective on while you learn career training pathway. Ours is the only and the very first registered apprenticeship program for the telecom and broadband industry. We call it TIREP, Telecommunication Industry Registered Apprenticeship Program. And, and we pioneered this for last five years, uh, six years actually now. And DOL has recognized our efforts by inviting us to become one of the industry intermediaries on this. And this contract actually needs to be renewed and continued year over year so that our work actually can, can produce this meaningful results and particularly on, on the underrepresented population point of view. DOL has, of course, acknowledged this and, and WIV actually further appreciate the administration's commitment to supporting partnership with community colleges and employers as well. I mentioned about dual grant where we are partnering with five community colleges. We are getting approached by a number of employers and number of community colleges on a weekly basis. So we definitely want to expand more into that. And we are also noticing a lot of activities and bipartisan support on addressing this issue, right, at the Congress. I, I particularly want to acknowledge Congresswoman Clark's effort in addressing this issue. I recently spoke at the Smart Cities Caucus event and reiterated many of the things I'm actually mentioning here, but Congresswoman Clark and Congressman Wahlberg, they introduced the Telecommunication Skilled Workforce Act, and that is actually going to be very, very helpful. That's going to help close the workforce shortage for our industry, and, and we, we, we support that wholeheartedly. So I just wanted to highlight that as well. Yeah, no, Congresswoman Clark, you know, as one of the co-chair people of the uh, Smart Cities Caucus, she understands this, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. And I think, uh, to your point, I love this whole framing of equity as one of the major concerns because I think we'll do a disservice if we actually don't have equity as one of the key things in mind when we are trying to actually roll out any jobs element of this plan. You know, I, I have to say, and, and again, we're not going to close. I want to go one more round because I something just came in my mind that I think is worth actually talking about as well, which is, and I'll, I'll kind of pivot this to you first. I mean, we're here having this great conversation about all the jobs that could be created. We're hearing, I think, very concrete examples of what an apprenticeship program could look like, what it could look like to have that STEM pipeline expanded and to close some of these gaps. But when things hit the road, we know that there are other wraparounds that sometimes exclude marginalized populations from being a part of these big picture ideas. You know, lack of background, you know, non-clean background checks, potentially not having a valid driver's license or state ID. Kind of like as a sociologist, I always get concerned that we'll see some of the same types of circumstances that affect us around voting or housing sort of seep into these new opportunities. What should we be telling the administration around these things? Because these are real issues for some people, right? Yeah, they're they're very important issues, and we have seen that. I mean, one thing that you don't you didn't mention. Yes, everything that you mentioned absolutely is a concern, but also just plain discrimination. And some of it, some of it is overt. Some of it is some of it is implicit. Some of it is. I, I don't have the right term, but some of it is just using your networks, right? Yep. Uh, we see the construction industry. There's this great work book done uh, by a sociologist called Race and the Invisible Hand, you know, looking at black and white high school graduates and all the white high school graduates knew someone in the construction industry and they got them jobs, and the black graduates didn't, so they didn't get any construction jobs, although they had the same training as the as the white graduates. So, you know, there are lots of obstacles, and we really need an administration and really the American society to recognize this and have a strong commitment to affirmative action. So, yes, we have to make sure that the workers have the skills and we have to recognize when there are unfair barriers. So, yeah. like... If you committed a crime 20 years ago, that shouldn't prevent you. If you committed a like, minor, nonviolent crime 20 years ago, that shouldn't prevent you from getting a job today. We need sensible policies, and we need people to have the appropriate skills, but we also have to recognize that there is racial discrimination in the labor market, and we have to 
we have to police that. We have to work to tamp that down and, and make sure that it's not uh, blocking people from from job opportunities. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely am so glad that we're bringing this up because you're right, you know, we'll have this plethora of jobs. And then particularly since they're jobs that tend to be more unionized, which is what I think the president's intent is because they offer more stability. We do have to go back and just visit the type of labor market discrimination that has seeped into everything from, you know, your network, as you mentioned, to even what you check on your application or if you can pass your background check. I or, think it's or the algorithm. Or the right? algorithm, right? That leads you. <laughs> Allison, you hear that? The algorithm that leads you to the job. You know what I mean? I mean, these are real things. And Allison, I mean, I think at least in the tech industry, there appears to be, because of the work that you all are doing, some deliberate effort to break down some of those barriers or at least make them more transparent, right? I think there are. I think, I mean, I think broadly speaking, there is a, a, a conversation around how do we think about equity and diversity and inclusion and addressing these biases and barriers at every single stage of the pipeline. So we're talking K-12 education, higher ed and post-secondary, entering into, into the workforce through things like recruitment, hiring practices, inclusion inside of workplaces, promotion retention policies, and then also who's in the you know C-suite and on the board. I think just looking at our most recent data, we just put out a report uh, a few, maybe a week ago, even over the past year where we saw huge commitments toward addressing systemic racism in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's killing there still hasn't been any significant movement. So I think that's what our, what the struggle is. And I think going back to Rickon's point, which is I think equity has to be at the center and the core of every uh, policy decision that's being made and every one of the suggestions within the infrastructure plan. We, if we have deeply unequal systems, we again, the same thing I said about education, we can't just layer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense there. I, I want to close this conversation now, you know, because I keep you all forever. And I'm always told that I talk too much. So I don't want to talk too much in this podcast. But I do want to say something because I think we're assuming that our audience are just the policy wonks like us. And there might be some people listening that are saying to themselves, you know, how do I understand more about how I can get involved? So I'd love to hear from each of you just real briefly. What would you leave with our listeners who are trying to figure out how to engage? You know, what would be your advice on on the steps that they need to take to sort of get in the game on this? I'll start with you, Rican. Oh, sure. Well, so I'm actually going to assume that we have different audience. Of course, policymakers are there listening and, and the policy audience within DC, but elsewhere as well. I mean, this is Brookings. Come on, everybody's listening. Oh, uh, thank you so much for that plug, Rican. <laughs> I, I think so too, but I just wanted to bring it up just in case. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely. So see, I have messages for two different audiences. One, I would say for employers, because they are the key players uh, for, for this, for workforce, right? They want to hire. We know that five is creating jobs. Our, our employers who are rolling out the networks, whether it's operators, network infrastructure, service integrators, they are all hiring, right? So my message to the employers that if you are talking about telecom and broadband, I would say that don't create your own apprenticeship program. The program has been created by us. That is Tyrep. We can build more occupations under this existing program. Just, just come and talk to us. I'd like to invite to all of them, you don't have to do any work. We have done legwork leg for you. In fact, there is no cost to join. We may be able to, in fact, allocate incentive funding to offset some of your cost to enroll apprentices into the program, offset some of the cost related to training as well. Another thing I want to emphasize is the Department of Labor's efforts and their, their recognition. They have done an amazing job and making this as a requirement, and that is 50% of the minimum 15 50% of the apprentices coming from underrepresented commun uh, communities, I think that's an excellent, excellent step in awarding this intermediary contracts. So I, I want to actually give kudos to DOL as well in, in doing that. And finally, if if this is an educational institution, if, if our listeners are coming from community colleges or, or any IHEs, and if you want to explore apprenticeships, please reach out. We can actually 
can not only help you connect with the regional employers, but can also help you create the industry-focused curriculum and training. Community colleges should not try to create their own apprenticeship program. They, will, they can definitely be provider of the classroom training, which is associated with the apprenticeship program, but definitely they should talk to the experts like WIA and, and we can definitely do the rest of the legwork for them. So I just wanted to convey those two messages to listeners coming from the IHE side and also from the employer side. No, thank you for that, because that ties exactly to the critical infrastructure of broadband as well. Algernon or Allison, anything that you want to say directly to folks that are not necessarily our usual suspects? I think Rican really covered most of the important things for, you know, an average, you know, an average for the average American looking for a, a good job. The only thing that I could say beyond that is that people... You know, I encourage people to use their their voice. And in terms of, as I mentioned at, at the start, we really need infrastructure investments and we need big investments so they can contact their representative and say, hey, you know, this is important. Let's go big. Let's make the investments that we need. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Allison? Both comments before me were excellent. And so for me, just the closing kind of, Maybe, maybe more inspirational or the things that I think about in terms of why this matters. Just encourage folks to keep thinking about and pushing at all levels, both engaged and locally, calling representatives, thinking about what can happen in the federal in the federal budget. But thinking about three things: how do we jumpstart our economy? How do we create more equitable distribution of wealth and opportunity? And then three as something I hope we can all agree on, how do we maintain our global competitiveness and where do we want to be in the next 30 years? So wow. that's what I think about. Yeah, you know what? That's such an honest truth because um, in the midst of all this are the fact that we are juxtaposed against some of our global competitors who value education and infrastructure a little differently than we do. You know what? I just have to say, Algernon Austin, senior researcher at the Thurgood Marshall Institute, Allison Scott, chief executive officer at the Kapoor Center Foundation, and Rikan Thakkor, chief technology officer at the Wireless Infrastructure Association. Thank you. Woo! That was a conversation that we needed to have. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. As we close this out, and everybody knows me, I'd like to just sort of summarize where we're at. And I'm just so um, humbled by all of your participation in this conversation. You know, the American Jobs Plan is called the American Jobs Plan for a reason, because it's going to generate jobs on an infrastructure that Algernon said needs a desperate repair. And I think what we also got out of this is that it's also going to revitalize local communities. We didn't talk a lot about state and local officials, but guess what? They're the beneficiaries because none of this infrastructure is all going to Washington, D.C. So the more we can think about that. But more importantly, I think what we glean from this um, conversation is sectoral focuses are actually interesting. It could be interesting to create greater alignment between education, workforce training, the infrastructure that we're going to deploy, and ultimately the outcomes of jobs. And don't make it inequitable. I think it's the big thing that came out of this conversation. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, the co-host of Tech Tank Podcast, which is a product of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institute. I thank you for listening once again. Tell your friends about this wonderful podcast, not just this episode, but all the episodes. And again, this is the final uh, segment of my Tech New Deal proposal. I hope somebody's listening because I think we need something like that to make sure we have equitable outcomes in the end. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.